hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. We've got two of the authors joining us today so that we can go over their query letters with them, Mira and Katie. So let's begin with you, Mira. Why don't you dive into reading us that first query letter? Okay, great. Dear Cece Lira, I am seeking representation for my 85,000 word adult commercial fiction novel, My Kosovo. It will appeal to fans of The Last Story of Mina Lee and Next Year in Havana, America 2030. When Adem's mother Nora dies suddenly, Adem is left to pick up the pieces of their fragmented relationship built upon a dark secret from her past. Adem attempts to bury it all under work and success when he enters into a fake engagement to gain control of the family company and the last thing he expects or wants is to fall in love. Haunted by intergenerational trauma, Adem must unravel the tenuous strings of his mother's past and his fractured childhood, or he risks losing his first real chance at love, his job, and his family. Kosovo 1998. 
Nora wants a quiet life in her small village in Kosovo. When her sister, a student activist, is killed, civil war breaks out. Daily life becomes a desperate quest to escape Kosovo and disappearances and arrests become the norm. Family and friends can no longer be trusted and Nora's safety hinges on the prospect of marrying a man her father chose as she pines for the one she truly loves. When her father is injured after an arrest, unthinkable tragedy strikes and Nora must find her own way out of Kosovo or lose herself to the brutality of war. I am an Albanian-American writer and historian. I live on the East Coast with my two children, husband, and my imaginary characters that keep me company. While I was born in the U.S., my family and I lived in Albania until 1997, when my mother's homeland Kosovo erupted into civil war and genocide, forcing us to escape. I spent decades interviewing family and friends as well as researching the war extensively. My Kosovo is a result of years of research and firsthand accounts. It also underwent an extensive revision during the mentorship program, The Right Team Mentorship, with author Yvette Yoon. Thank you for your time and consideration. Wonderful, Mira. Thank you so much. Cece, why don't you let us know of what you thought of the query letter? Thank you, Mira, for joining us. You're absolutely wonderful to do this. The query letter is really well structured, right? So I get very first line, really, title, word, count, genre, comps. The plot paragraphs are very clear in terms of, you know, where they are in the query letter, the author paragraph. The structure is like A+. My notes for you, I guess. So they start with the comps. Last story of Mina Lee and next year in Havana. I guess I see these. I don't see these as commercial fiction. I wonder if you do. And then you're calling your book commercial fiction. So it does give me pause, right? When when the comps aren't in the same genre, at least I don't perceive them to be, which is something to think about. Maybe it's intentional, maybe it's not, but definitely something to think about. And if it is intentional, then I guess maybe another line explaining you know, why you pick these comps, even though they're not in the same genre. So when it comes to the plot paragraphs, I'll start with the first one that starts with America 2030. This is not your fault at all. But when I hear America 2030, I go, "Ooh, a futuristic dystopian novel, you know, like that's the first thing that comes to my mind. And I understand that probably it needs to be said in the future, not too distant future, which is kind of scary to think about. But I don't know that it's giving off the right vibes. So I might just write present day. It's a city be really specific. Don't say America. America is too broad. A city present day. I think you can get away with present day if it's just a few years in the future. I don't know. And then when it comes to a Dems paragraph, there is so much vagueness in, in these sentences. I actually highlighted them. Left to pick up the pieces of their fragmented relationship built upon a dark secret from her past. Could be anything. Literally anything. She could be a secret assassin. He could have been switched at birth. Like all these, it could be anything. Haunted by intergenerational trauma, Adem must unravel the tenuous strings of his mother's past and his fractured childhood. Again, literally anything. And it's beautiful writing. So you're flexing those muscles, but those muscles shouldn't be flexed in the query letter. I think that you can cut these sentences, that this vagueness, even sentences that I did not note are still vague. You'll, you'll notice this when you get my notes. And flesh out the actual on-the-page plot. Same note for the second paragraph, though it's a little bit better because I am getting on the page plot with the 1998 story, with Nora's story. I don't think you need the line where you say daily life becomes a desperate quest to escape Kosovo and disappearances and arrests become the norm. You can cut that line and just get a little bit more space so that you can flesh out the on the page paragraph. Is it intentional that unthinkable tragedy strikes and we have no idea what that is? Because if that's the reveal, then don't tell us. But if it comes before, then maybe we should know. Because it's, again, vague, unthinkable. 
unthinkable tragedy and like lose herself to the brutality of war does this mean being killed like literally lose her life because if so i would specify and i would also specify with a bit more of an antagonistic force that is personified war is not personified right like it's too big it's too amorphous so i would be like there's this person after her whatever the person is uh, these forces are after her all in all the potential is great but i need more specificity in terms of the plot and i will say that i've seen this happen with stories that are based on family history quite often the author in an attempt to do it justice right like they spend a lot of time getting the history right getting the emotions right and then they not that they forget but they you know they only later do they realize that they need on the page plot and sometimes the story already has on the page plot and all you need to do is make sure that the query letter reflects that but sometimes the story doesn't have on the page plot sometimes the story is a character study with wonderful emotions and beautiful history and then it's your job as a storyteller to weave in the on the page plot all the work you've done up until now if if i'm diagnosing this correctly it's not wasted just the opposite you had to go through this work a hundred percent but that there's still a, a ways a ways to go right like you still have a road ahead of you and i really do love the line about the imaginary characters keeping you company that was so great i loved that thank you cc before we move to you mira to get some answers and to see if you have questions carly did you have anything you wanted to add my only note here, I think, is about the title. So your comps are a little bit more lyrical in title. The last story of Mina Lee, Next Year in Havana. So I think your title sounds a little bit like nonfiction to me. It doesn't sound like a novel. So I would definitely try to look at making your title kind of a little bit more in line with those other comps, a little bit lyrical, a little bit longer, something like that. Yeah, wonderful. And I mean, you can still keep Kosovo in the title, but you can play around with it and yeah, just make it that tiny bit more lyrical. Okay, so Mira, now's your time to reply or to ask questions before we go into your opening pages. Sure. So my old title actually used, I used to love my old title. It was The Geography of Us. And then I changed it to My Kosovo because the characters say My Kosovo in a really like poetic moment between characters. But I've been tempted lately to go back to the geography or of us or something like it. The comps were re have been really hard for me to figure out because there aren't a lot of novels that are set in, in Eastern Europe that really resemble the story that I'm writing in there. So I've been, I've been reading a lot trying to find something that fits that. But after the retreat that I was part of, I think I know now better what comps I can find. My only question is that in the query, in order for me to be more specific, I'm kind of worried that I will give away the big secret. And I'm I'm kind of not sure of how to to be specific without giving away the secret. That is always a difficult balance to strike. I appreciate that. I think if you add more on the page plot, because right now in Adam's paragraph, what I wanted to know more of was the fake engagement to gain control of his family company, right? Like if you develop that, the secret won't have to be revealed because we'll be so enthralled and so invested in his predicament that is not being kept from us, right? Who is trying to get get the company from him? Is it a cousin that he grew up next to? And, you know, the cousin... Cousins are a great source of tension because 
you have the same family, same blood, but like different parents, so different realities, socioeconomic realities. Is his cousin trying to take the company from him? If that happens, I immediately root for him, right? Because I'm in his head and there's someone with a shape, with a name, trying to take something from him. This woman that he's in love with, is is she falling for someone else after he starts falling for her? Like, is that like, I just need to know what the tension is on the page, the stuff that's not being kept from us. And that way you don't have to worry about revealing the secret. But you haven't fleshed that out in the query letter because, and I'm 100% sure that I'm right about this, because you are so invested in in the emotionality of the secret. This is why you're writing the story. I know this because we chatted in the retreat. You are invested in the story because it means so much to you. I, your ambition was, I could feel it from across a screen, right? Like how much this means to you. And this is great. Keep all that. Just remember that it's almost like you're going to write a second book, a second book with plot now. And then you'll weave in that stuff later. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. All right, Mira, will you give our listeners an understanding of what's in those opening pages before we get Cece to discuss them? Sure. So in the opening pages, Adem and his sister Zana are packing up their mother's things after she passed away. And the emotions are very different for them. While his sister is nostalgic and grieving, he is full of anger and resentment. He has a box labeled burn, and he's tossing things into the burn box and refusing to keep anything of hers. And then he finds a letter with her name on it. And it has information that alludes to the secret. And he is the secret in a way. And then he leaves angry and upset and crying. And the last line is, even in death, he wasn't free of her. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, Cece, what was your take on them? Okay, I am going to share my take. And I want you to know that I am sharing all these thoughts because I know where you're coming from. I know you want to make this the very best story that it can possibly be. Line level stuff. Let's start with that. I want you to count the number of times you say things in the first two paragraphs. Let us cut that. Let us use some other words. I realize that there's repetition here that's intentional. And actually, there's repetition that's working really well. So for example, not after the way she died, not after the way she had lived. That was beautiful. That wasn't bad repetition. That was good repetition. That was echo, right? Like that was wonderful. But up until then, I kept highlighting all these things that did not let my brain get invested in the story. And in fairness, my brain is weird, but it still bothered me. My big picture note for you, and then we'll get to details. My big picture note for you is that this is too monothematic. It's too obvious. We have two people grieving. You're starting with this huge challenge, right? Like grief, not an active emotion. Even though he's angry, right? Because he's angry at something that is dead already, like his mom, so he can't really do anything about it. So he's just like sulking in his anger. You don't have tension between the, the, the brother and sister, which I understand that is not their story. His mom is dead, so it's, it's not like the antagonist is there to, to make us root for him because we don't know enough about the story. And you keep mentioning the secret, but not telling us what the secret is, which is very aggravating. And I think the reason has to do with the same note that I gave you in the query letter. There isn't sufficient on the page plot. There isn't sufficient stuff happening in his life. I have no idea what he is other than the vessel for Nora. And I'm saying this because, and I see this is very common in dual timeline novels where you have the present day character, in your case, it's a little bit in the future, be the entry point into the story because the reader can connect to the person in the present day because they're in the present day. And then, you know, they find something about this other character in the past. And then we go to the past in the, in the other POV, Right. So the problem with that, this is a great structure in terms of getting the reader invested, but the challenge is that you have to make Adem a real person. He can't just be a vessel for, for Nora. He can't just be, 
there as a placeholder because otherwise we're not invested in him. It's too forced. Them, They're, they're grieving, having a, a normal grieving situation, right? Like the box with the storage, the box with the burn. And then he stumbles onto a book and he finds a letter in the very same scene. It's too plot convenient. It's And from an emotional perspective, it's quite passive, right? Because I mentioned like grief is off, often passive and people aren't interested in the details of grief yet because they don't know enough about the character. So I recommend having something else happening, something interesting, something that keeps me curious and keeps me invested in Adam. And then when he finds the book, it's it's a whole new layer to the chapter, right? Like I'm surprised that he found the book. I thought that I was going to get a different payoff when I was reading this. So I also want to say that at, in the end, the emotional calibration when, when he mentions that she, you know, she was still alive in his head, that felt unearned to me. All he did was find a letter he had already found before. It, it hardly merits this reaction. It's like you wanted him to get there, so you wrote that he got there, but he didn't. I did. I didn't feel him getting there at all. I don't. I'm trying. I had ideas of what you could do to weave in, which I won't get into unless you want me to. But I had ideas of what you could do to weave in tension in the first scene. That's totally separate from the grief. But I will say that it is your job, whatever idea you go with, to not make me feel frustrated, but make me feel curious. So the secret will make me feel curious if I'm feeling sad satisfied with something else on the page. And right now I'm not because there's nothing else happening. So for example, how his mom messed him up. There's a line where sometimes she even showered with them with warmth and played games, but it never lasted long. She withdrew within herself and they blamed themselves. It's a beautiful line, right? Like absolutely excellent, great emotion. But if he were a real person, if he were a fleshed out person, he would be making the connection with his present life. He would be thinking, and this is why I can never, you know, connect to a partner. This is why I can never make friends. This is why XYZ in my present life, my full life, in my job, in my friendships, in my hobbies, in my goals, this is what she did to me. Because this is what you think, like when you have a, a difficult relationship with your parents and you're sitting in grief and resenting them because that's that, that happens and you have a memory, what you do is you connect that memory to your present day life. You go, and this is why I'm like this. You know, this is why I can't make friends. This is why X, Y, Z. And I'm going to shut up now because I'm just repeating myself at this point. So you talk and let's let's have an exchange. So I totally agree. And his part of the story has always struck me as the weaker part of the story. Nora's story is really beautiful. And I'm like strong in the plot and all of the things and that people have given me feedback that they're curious throughout and it sparks interest and everything. And then the feedback has been that Adem's story has been, while good, has has been frustrating and uh, and slower to get excited about. So I think what I latched onto was making sure that the secret is not revealed too soon because of the way it's revealed in Nora's plot line. So it's definitely going to be another revision to take on to make his more specific and more interesting so that I don't lose a reader in the first pages. All you get is the first pages, unfortunately. I, I see this happening all the time where people are like, actually, my second chapter is stronger. And I'm like, no one's going to read your second chapter. I'm sorry to say this. Can I play with the story? Do you let me? Do you you can permission? do whatever you want with my story. I'm Because I'm not going to okay. learn anything if I don't get all of the feedback. The idea isn't going to work. There's no way. But it's it'll it'll hopefully help you come up with an idea of your own. Imagine that in addition to his sister, there's a cousin there. I'm telling you, cousins are great. The cousin who wants to steal the family company from him, okay? The cousin who he grew up watching the cousin have everything that he never had. A mother who was not emotionally manipulative and hot and cold. And the cousin who's a nice person. The cousin gets to be a nice person and he doesn't because he is bitter and brittle and messed up. 
And the cousin is there, and the cousin's there because his sister invited him, and he's mad at his sister. And the sister says, well, I thought that you wouldn't show up because you and mom have always had issues. And he's like, of course I show up. I, I, I do my duty. Like, I, yes, we have issues, but I do my duty. So he's there with the cousin, and the cousin's being helpful, which is very annoying. Nobody wants a helpful person at this moment, especially not the stupid cousin, right? So the cousin is the one who finds the letter. Because that makes him angry. That, that makes it invasive, right? Like that's so, so much better. That makes him grab the book. That creates tension. And through his mind, he's not thinking about the boxes. He's doing that on autopilot. That, that's only taking up one or two lines. Really, what's in his mind is his company. His company, his job, the girl he likes. I don't know. I don't know what's on his mind, but it's not what's in front of him. It never is, right? So he is stressed out and thinking, you know what? Maybe it's good that he's here. Maybe he'll be tired tomorrow and I'll be at the company early and I'll get the whatever I need to get early and I'll beat him, right? Like he's being competitive. There's rivalry. Rivalry is very important for tension. So then when all this happens and we find the book, the book is just another layer. The book is just another thing that I'm invested in. And then I realized that this man who has a full life, a full fleshed out person with an interesting inner life, with a rivalry, with an ambition, with a threat, this man also has a secret. And then the also is okay. Because the line, I highlight it, you'll get it when you'll get my notes. The lines about the secret right now, I'm like, come on, don't do this to me. Don't dangle this in front of me and not, and then not reveal it. But at the same time, of course you shouldn't reveal your secret, but then you have to reveal other things. Make sense? Yes, no. It's okay to say no, for real. No, that totally makes sense. And I really love that idea. And that idea will totally work in a couple different ways based off of how cousins function in Albanian families. So it's going to be even more dramatic. And you've given me a lot to work with. So I appreciate it. Listen, Albanian Brazil could not be more different cultures, but the cousin thing, the same. It's something I figured out with my Albanian friends. It's why I wanted to give you a cousin idea. And just on that, you know, we writing is manipulation. You are completely and utterly manipulating your reader. But the minute they feel manipulated, the whole contract between writer and reader kind of ends. So, you know, we keep saying specificity, create questions, have the reader asking questions. But like they need to be turning the pages to find out the secret without feeling manipulated by the secret. And that is where the finessing of the story comes in. You still have time for one or two more questions, Mira? So when I when I add to his story and you said to make him more of a, a character with a full life, do you have any more advice on that aspect? Because I'm still a little bit lost on like, should I give him more of, you know, a career and like talk about his career or why he's so messed up? Or I'm, I'm not 100% sure on what you mean by making him a real person. Totally get your question. I wouldn't get into any explanation because we're on the first pages, right? So we don't want explanation. You're not going to tell me what he does. Like Adam does this, none of that. What I want instead is for him to be in his own head, in his own life. And I will put the pieces of the puzzle together in terms of what that means. So if it were me and, and I were, you know, going through my dad's things after he died, what you would be seeing in my head is, oh my gosh, I have to turn in that contract. My boss is calling me. I can't believe they're calling me when my dad just died. I'm going to pick up this phone. I'm going to be rude. Like, and I'm not going to explain she was a lawyer. Like no one's going to do that. But I'll figure it out because you'll use words like firm, firm calling, firm, what firm, probably a law firm. So it'll be subtle. What you have to do first, and this is the part that's really fun in my opinion, is write the stuff that's not going to make it into your book. Write a short story based on Adem. Write his character study. Write an outline. Write whatever you want to write, truly. But write a whole life for him. 
in like 10 pages or so, right? Like everything he does, everything he likes, how he takes his coffee, everything. Again, 99.9% will not make it to the page. But the but the parts that will, will be intentional and will form a fully fleshed out picture. Okay, great. Thank you so much for all of the advice. I have a lot to work with and I'm super excited to dive back in. Thank you, all of you. Awesome, Mira. Thanks so much for joining us. Good Thank luck. you so much for joining us. Thank you. Keep us posted as to how it goes. All right, that was it from Mira. We're now moving on to Katie. Katie, welcome to the show. Why don't you read us your query letter? Thank you so much for having me. Dear Miss Waters, I am writing to seek representation for my 87,000 word literary slash book club fiction novel, Keeper of Ruins, which explores the interwoven pasts of three generations of families, both black and white, living on a sugarcane plantation in 20th century Louisiana. Your interest in fiction with great voices and characters inspired me to reach out to you. I am an avid listener of the podcast and have learned so much from your conversations. Lee Saunier, the privileged granddaughter of the last patriarch of a plantation dynasty, is finishing her senior year of college and coping with the sudden loss of her father when a startling discovery about her family's past plunges her into a quest for truth. Long-forgotten papers and a dusty archive inspire her to confront her family's complicity in the racism and poverty that haunt her community, finally recognizing that she has spent most of her life denying these brutal realities she turns to her best friend, Alyssa, whose family still lives in the quarters where their ancestors had been enslaved. Lise also finds herself falling in love with Rain, the son of the plantation's former overseer. Forbidden from seeing him due to an incident in childhood, Lise believes her family has rejected Rain because of his socioeconomic status. But as she delves deeper into family secrets, a memory of one night of horrific violence in the ruins of a crumbling plantation home comes to the surface. The mysterious disappearance of a sugarcane worker turned labor organizer suddenly emerges as the key to unlocking Lise's past. Ultimately, Lise's journey of self-discovery leads her to a reckoning she cannot escape and she is forced to choose between family loyalty or justice, her past or her future. This multiple POV family saga combines scenes of Lise's last year in college with flashbacks helping to tether the past to the present. Readers who enjoyed Where the Crawdads Sing, The Vanishing Half, and Ernest Gaines, A Gathering of Old Men, will be interested in Keeper of Ruins. I am a 10th generation Louisianian and received my master's degree in history from Louisiana State University in 2005. I have dedicated my career as a professional historian to uncovering the stories of enslaved people. I was instrumental in the early stages of research for Whitney Plantation and created a searchable online database of over 400 enslaved individuals at Evergreen Plantation, along with biographies of enslaved people for the plantation's website. Currently, I am the historian at Laura Plantation, where I co-curated an exhibit dedicated to the plantation's enslaved community. I live on a hobby farm with my husband, three young children, one dog, two cats, seven chickens, and three goats. My nonfiction biography, Antoine of O'Galley, The Unlikely Origin of Pecans, and The Enslaved Gardener Who Cultivated Them, was published in November 2021. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Katie Morlos Shannon. Wonderful, Katie. Thank you so much. How awesome that we have two historians as our authors today. Carly, why don't you give us your take on that query letter? 
All right. Number one, you have a great voice. I am so glad that we picked you for the podcast because, man, there's not a lot of authors where I'm like, you should narrate your future audiobook. And I'm like, I am pretty sure you should narrate your future audiobook. So I think you did a lovely job. Oh, thank I, you. I enjoyed it. Okay. So now we get to the meat of things here. Number one, title. I think you need a new title. Keeper of Ruins. It sounds a little like, is it archaeological? Is it fantasy? I, I think you could probably brainstorm some more options. And if you have other t- options, I'm happy to. I am terrible at I'm terrible at titles, so I rely on my English teacher husband for that often. So I'm definitely open to finding a better title. Okay, yeah, I would put that on your list. Okay, and so in the and then the first paragraph, you have two kind of personalization sentences. I would cut one of them. You you have your interest in fiction with great voices, and then you say, "I'm an avid listener of the podcast." I would just keep one of those. I don't think you need both of those. (laughs) I also think you're missing a hook. So that way, if you take out one of those paragraphs, you're kind of missing like an overarching hook sentence here. So that way you can give yourself some room and and I would add that in there. I think your hook is kind of buried in the bottom. We'll get to this later. But yeah, I I feel like your your hook is kind of buried in the bottom of the second paragraph. And so I think you kind of like bring something up there and plop it in the top. Okay, now the next paragraph. So one of my concerns when I read books where it's like, and I'm not saying this is what your book is or anything like that, but I get I see a trend of this. I see a trend of so and so discovers their past history by going up to the attic and they kicked over a box and then the box just happened to have letters in it and then the letters revealed this right so i i'm not saying this is what your book is but just to guard against that just make sure it's very clear about like why does she need to do this startling discovery like for an example i had was it tax fraud right like she has to go digging in the attic for for paperwork so i would just make sure that is just really clear i just get a little cringy when i'm worried something is coincidental as i said like we're gonna we're gonna journey up to the attic and we're we're just gonna like see what we find right so I would just love to know why does she need to go dig in through that box that that for me is really important next we get to the middle so this I guess we'll, we could talk about some of the overarching themes here at this point because you have like whose family still lives in the quarters where their ancestor has been ens- enslaved I love that you're going head on with the plantation clearly there were enslaved people on this property like I really love that you're tackling this head on that's one of my favorite things about this and so anyway that's like a, a nice glass of cold water for for me because, you know, there's a lot of plantation stories where it's like, you know, we're not going to address the realities of what this property was for. And so I really love that you're tackling this, you know, you're tackling this head on. I think that's great. So I do have a couple questions about timeline. Again, we can get to this, but is this the present day? And if so, what year are you calling this the present day? Because you also have whose family still lives in the quarters where their ancestors had been enslaved. And you're not saying like, it's been updated to modern times or anything like that. So I'm just getting this sense of where are we in time and space? Because I know we're going to be traveling through history. So I think you just kind of got to be really clear at every point. Where are we in history? What's been updated for modern times? And and just, I don't know, I would just like to be really clear about that. And then we have, one of the things I really liked was this like forbidden from seeing him due to an incident in childhood. Lee's believes her family has rejected rain because of his socioeconomic status. And, you know, so I really, I really felt like there were real things keeping them apart. So I thought that section was great. And so my next note was... It's it's a long paragraph, but you got a lot of, you know, you have a lot of ground to cover. So I think you did pretty good. The only thing is then in the next paragraph, you say this is a multi-POV family saga, whereas we're really only hearing about Lisa's point of view. So... I know you're smiling right now. So I know you probably have thoughts about like, how do I cover all of this in my query letter, right? So I totally get it. But maybe just say what other POVs are covered, even though this query letter focuses on her. Maybe you can just say it's a multi-POV saga that, you know, also covers the cousin or, you know, because I 
know she's in the car with the cousins and in the pages. So just let me know who else is in the POV. Even if you do want to focus the query letter on one POV, you just kind of got to let me know, I think, who the other POVs are. And other than that, you know, I think your author bio is great. And as I said, it really focuses on, you know, this is a plantation. Real people worked, you know, worked here. This was a workplace for them. And as I said, I really love that you're you're tackling that head on, even though it's fictionalized. I think you're doing a wonderful job. I did Google to see if you were, what skin color you were, because it, it did, inf- it, it, it would potentially inform my opinion about the context and and the history and everything like that. I was mostly just curious, you know, in terms of what context in terms of your personal life and your personal background and your family ancestry like might bring to this. But, you know, the fact that you are so committed in your professional background to being historian, I felt like I could feel that you were making very sensitive choices in terms of the way that you're going to cover this in a fictionalized way. So I felt like we were in good hands. Okay, Katie, so why don't you give us some feedback in terms of questions Carly asked, and now's your opportunity to ask her questions in return. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up how that finding the family secret and lost papers thing read to you, because I did not realize that it came across that way. So that is good to know. What actually happens in this story is she's in a history class that it's it's Southern history, and he the, the professor actually brings up that her family is one of was one of the larger slaveholders and plantation-owning families in uh, Louisiana, and that their family papers are at LSU's archives, which inspires her to go there and research and ask, can you pull the box, you know? And that's where she starts to really realize the extent of her background, and it makes her understand that the depth of what they're dealing with. So there's that. The thing, you're right, that it's a lot going on. So the multiple POV, what I have going Going on is kind of like the multiple POV. There are POVs of multiple narrators, her mother, her uncle, herself when younger, talking about the past situation in which she ultimately is a witness to the murder of this labor uh, organizer. She and Rain witness that. And so her family wants to keep them apart because they witness this and it's hushed up. So I have that. It's a flashback those POVs. And then we have this more contemporary time period in which she is now remembering and realizing what happened and contextualizing it. And it's all leading to this dramatic conclusion where she decides, I can't live like this anymore. I have to leave. But in terms of time frame, I kind of visualized like the early 90s through 2000, where David Duke was coming kind of on the rise and there was that really horrible election where most of the white population in Louisiana voted for him and so that kind of climate now when I say that her best friend still lives in what was this essentially a a slave cabin a cabin that was used by enslaved workers so people were living in in quarters for enslaved workers up through the 70s and 80s in Louisiana on sugarcane plantations and in fact there are some people today who are still occupying structures that were once used in that capacity so I think it's something people don't realize the extent of rural poverty and the entrenchment of these rural parishes and these sugarcane plantations and what is still going on there in terms of the power dynamic. Carly, did you have something that you wanted to add now that you've you've got those answers? Is there a way you would suggest Katie restructure the query letter? Would you like her to specify in the query letter what time frame we're looking at? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that's important to just have either like a year or a decade, you know, you can even say the 90s or you know what I mean? It's just some sort of like, I need to put a pin on when this was. All that was very interesting. I was like nodding along. Like, this is an amazing history lesson. I feel like... <laughs> Clearly, you're very good at your job. I was just nodding along and totally enraptured. And yeah, no, I think it all makes sense. I'm I'm very curious about where this is going. There's clearly some actual like plot here. And, and I think the query letter really does its job. Like, I feel like, you know, you, you've hooked me. That's for sure. Wonderful. Okay, so Katie, will you give our listeners an overview of what's in those opening pages before Carly gives you her critique? So there is a hurricane coming approaching Louisiana's coastline. And our protagonist, Lise, who is in her last year of college at Louisiana State University, LSU, is in the car with her two cousins. But instead of evacuating from the hurricane and going further away from the coast, they are in fact driving into the path of the storm. Her cousin points out what kind of a family demands that its members drive into a hurricane. And that's something that will be explored through the course of the story in terms of conformity and needing to always be together and control. Something has happened to her father. It's unspecified at this time, but implied it's led to a change in some of her behaviors as well as tension with her mother. As we go on, they arrive at what is the family home, and it was a former plantation. And you're introduced to the family patriarch, her grandfather, who is very tough and hard, but he clearly favors her. And they are assigned, she and her cousins are assigned tasks to prep for the hurricane. And Rain, the overseer's son, who helps out around the places there, her cousin is very disparaging of him and dismissive, looks down upon him. But Lise meets Rain in the barn, and they are about to have a conversation when the pages end. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, Carly, what was your take on them? So we definitely need a timestamp off of the top here. So what year, what year would you say this is? So that's what's difficult in okay. that I want it to be slightly around the 2000-ish time okay. period for the timeline because I, I, I see three books in this like as a series, okay. and yet the David Duke election was in 91. So that's why I purposely made it vague, but I'm seeing that I need to be more specific. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I would just, you know, you got to pick a date or... A year, you don't have to say it's April 12th or whatever, right? Like you could even just say a year, but really, really important for a few reasons, but but just for like placing ourselves because the 90s were a long time ago. That's like 30 years now, right? So <laughs> it's like, so it feels so weird sometimes calling something like historical, but 30 years ago, I know it's totally mind blowing, right? So we definitely need some sort of context. The cars were different back then, right? Like just so, you know, I'm saying back then, I'm only like 35 years old. But you know, it's like so much about this scene actually does matter about the time period, right? Because you also have like her smoking, you know, somebody smoking in the car, somebody has like some open liquor in the car, that context of in the 90s versus now, you know, is, is different, right? So I definitely would like just some sort of idea of where we are in history. The other thing I wanted to say just from like a, a personal standpoint, because 
all of us bring our own biases and opinions to to when we when we read a manuscript is I have been to New Orleans and I've been to New Orleans in a storm. So I like I, I could feel like, I did again, haven't lived there for an extensive period of time, but I was doing this food tour, like walking tour of, of New Orleans and I got this emergency text on my phone and it was like a storm's coming. Literally two seconds later, it was a torrential downpour. So I have experienced a storm in Louisiana. I just want to put that on the record that I was like, I can feel, I can feel this moment. So the fact that she's barreling down the highway into a storm, I'm like, she is crazy. (laughs) She is like, something serious is going on for her to want to be, need to be doing this. And so I'm obviously, we've all seen the news and know what hurricanes can do, you know, to a state like, like Louisiana, right? So we're, we're very aware of that context. It's very dangerous scene. I really like this. I think you're doing such a Great job here. The only thing I was a little bit confused about was you have the wind not yet wild, only determined, swept her hair from her face and kept it back. I was very confused in that moment why the windows would be down in a storm, but then you get to the point about like she's smoking. So I, you know, it, it all does come together, but somehow I just feel like a timestamp will help us help us understand these things better or mention the smoking before you mention the window down. Little things like that. There's just, you know, I really like this line. She watched the birds overhead, knew by their direction of flight that something was coming without even having to be told. Maybe that was the only warning the Choctaw Indians got back when the land was theirs, the fleeing birds and that funny feeling to the air. Just like such a sense of place and presence and history in that moment. I I really, I really liked that. I wanted to know how old the other cousins were. I think you mentioned that maybe they were all coming from LSU, but the fact, again, this is totally situational in terms of the way that people speak is that, you know, he says, where's my daddy? And that Sounds young, but I know that people, you know, say that all the time in terms of it doesn't matter how old or young you are. To me, that just feels young. So I would probably somewhere, not not in that line, but just like explain that the cousins are also, you know, in college or something like that. My main note for you for these pages, because again, I really like this. I think there's tension, is that there are too many people. There are too many people in these pages. <laughs> there's her, there's the cousins, and then we get to the building and then it's like, there's these people and then there's these people and they live here. And they, I'm like, I have, I don't know who anybody is. I don't know what anybody's doing. I know that we're in a storm. And so somehow I feel like we just need to be more present with our protagonist in this moment instead of trying to introduce everybody in the family, really stay present with our with our protagonist. Because I think when you're succeeding in these pages, like I mentioned, she's having this moment of connection to the land and the history. Like, I really feel like you're succeeding when we're really in her point of view and not meeting everybody in the family. So when they get to, you know, when they, when they pull up and um, I think it's maybe the grandfather's on the porch or something like that, just take command of that scene. I feel like that's when you just release the scene in a way to, to everybody else. And you just, I feel like you just lost control of that scene a little bit and you and I really just wanted to continue to be with her in that moment it's so important when we're starting a book to feel really grounded with our protagonist and feel like we're safe in safe hands on this journey even if we're in a storm like she's going to be the one to take us through and the fact that you just as I said felt like we just lost control a little bit of that scene when we just let everybody else into it somehow I just feel like the storm is enough and I would just try to be in that not like you have to slow it down to stay without conflict but Just think about her positioning in the story and how she kind of lost control of that moment, maybe. Okay, Katie, so do you want to reply to that? And now's your opportunity to ask questions. So it's interesting to hear your perspective, because I think I'm so deeply rooted in Louisiana culture and like Southernness that I don't see certain things that other people would have questions about. 
I call my dad daddy. And it's a, it's a Southern, not everybody does it, but some people do. You know what I mean? Like, totally, um, totally. And, and I, then the I family. Figured, I totally figured that. So it's not like you have to change that. I think yeah. it's just, as I said, in that scene when they're all in the car, but you're right, just, just place us in it. Let us know. Yeah. And then um, I think you would be shocked by some of the things that still go on down here in terms of smoking in cars and drinking in vehicles, sadly enough. But the other thing is, you're right, there, there are so many characters. And that is one of the things I've struggled with in writing it, because it is so much about a family, but it's also so much about her journey as well. One of the crucial themes is her separating herself from her family and finding her own identity apart from them, because that, I mean, that harkens back to them driving into the storm. It's that they must all be together. They must all be doing the same thing. And, and they're all kind of this one entity. So yeah, I will, I will need to find a way to balance that while seeing things predominantly through her perspective. It could also be you build up the patriarch in our minds in the car. You know what I mean? Because that's why, as I said, it felt so chaotic mm. when we got there. Okay, there's these rules. I love that there's rules, right? It's like, oh, there's rules. We all got to be home. And then we kind of, I don't know, somehow we, I, I think we have to fear this patriarch a little bit in a way of like, that's why they got to get home, right? Like you can't let down the patriarch. And I just felt like it was so okay. passive that we like met him. And then it was like, and then we're wandering on. I, I, the storm is so great. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That we like almost like you know Knives Out. Do you, I don't know if you saw the movie Knives Out. Such a good movie. Where it's like we all got to be home for the reading of the will. Like there was such like that patriarchal figure present that I really just wanted that kind of moment of why. Obviously, family matters super important, but I needed that patriarchal pull. Oh, definitely. That makes complete sense now. Thank you. And the suggestion there is, you know, I know in terms of a character arc, you want to show her being such a big part of this family and then later she leaves it. But remember that we can still stay close to her and you can show the family by what looms large in her mind, what she is prioritizing over her own safety because these people loom so large in her mind. You know, we're defined by the, the people who control us, who when they snap their fingers, we go running. And, you know, you can still show us very much her by showing us these things that loom large in her mind without those things taking focus away from her if that makes sense it does and that's very insightful because it does go back to the theme of control and power which is the plantation system and mindset so that that makes complete sense and so much control is not about that person actually physically cracking the whip control is about that person having power over you so that you behave in a certain way even if they're not standing next to you because you know what the repercussions are going to be down the line and they take up so much headspace you know and that's a great way of showing someone's power you know how we behave when they're not sitting there next to us because what they say and do matters so much to us That's very insightful because what I often tell people is that while the brutality of slavery obviously was horrific, the emotional toll, the psychological toll was even worse. And you're coming from this system and it not does not just impact people who of of African-American ancestry. It impacts everyone who's involved with this power structure. So thank you. That makes sense. Wonderful. We're almost out of time, Katie, but do you have any questions that you want to pick Carly's brain at while you have her here? Do you think there's a future to this? I mean, should I continue to spin out? Obviously, I have to edit my query (laughs) to your suggestions, but do you think that there may be a future and and a possible publication of this manuscript based on what you've seen? I know you've only seen a little. 
Yeah, my, my little itty bitty bit. But yeah, no, I, I really think there's something here. I think you're tackling something, as you said, just the layers of history, everything from the actual, as you said, the physical presence of slavery to the, the emotional and the decades later, right? It's like, as you said, like the power struggles, you know, in, in these communities are still there, right? Because of the wealth gap and everything like that, right? We're just, and I, I can see what you're building at. And I like what I can see that you're building at, even if I can't see it. So I think everything you're dealing with in terms of themes is super interesting, super relevant. It's just, you know, got to get the words on the page. So yeah, no, I would, I'd love to see, I'd love to see the manuscript when you feel like it's ready to share, because it seems like there's a lot of, of really interesting material here. Well, thank you so much. And y'all made my day because yesterday was my 40th birthday. So this was a very exciting way to celebrate. Happy Happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, Katie. And may that big milestone be a stepping stone to greater things. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. 
And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hello, lovely listeners. It is Carly Waters, your co-host of the podcast. I wanted to tell you guys about a webinar that I have coming up. Um, one thing that I just can't stop doing is just teaching. And one of the things that I really miss about the pandemic and traveling and going to conferences is that I don't get to interact with you guys as much. So I've pivoted to virtual. So I'm going to be doing a querying 101, writing your pitch, querying your book and signing with an agent webinar. This is on March 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to cover 90 minutes of questions like what's the true purpose of your query letter? What should your structure look like? What do query letters look like from successful authors and best-selling books? What are the do's and don'ts? How do I personally my letter and how do I find the right agent for me? I look forward to seeing everyone there. You can find all the information at carlywaters.com slash webinars, and you'll be able to sign up. I really look forward to seeing you there. If you can't attend in person and you still want the recording, do make sure that you sign up because everyone will get the recording emailed to them afterwards. I look forward to seeing you there. Then are you struggling with getting a particular scene exactly right? Not sure if you've nailed the pacing or tension or if your opening pages are doing the heavy lifting? Or are you uncertain as to whether your characters are coming across the way you would like them to? Or maybe you just like some feedback on your writing in general. Join the Work in Progress workshopping session with me and you'll submit 2,500 words to be critiqued by four other writers while you critique their work at the same time. Now, as you Prepare for the session, you'll learn how to give and receive critique, which is honestly the best way of learning the craft of writing. And during the actual session, you'll share these critiques with one another and get to ask each other questions. I'm running this on the 16th of March at 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can book for that on my website, biancamaray.com, under the Courses, Retreats, and Services tab. And then if you are hoping to join the Shit No One Tells You About Writing Book Club, but you weren't able to attend the retreat, we've also now made it available that you can sign up for the book club on the website under that same tab for the first book club that's coming up in March. Then if you'd like to submit to our Books with Hook segment, please go to my website, biancamaray.com, look for the podcast page. The submission link is there. Please just read the instructions carefully before submitting so that you make sure you include the right format and all the information that we need. And then finally, we're very excited to be announcing a giveaway that we're doing along with Craft Better Books, who are giving away the prize of a world building audit. Now, what is a world building audit? It includes a 30 minute pre-project consultation. 
a review of all of your current world building material, a world building audit letter offering praise, feedback, points of growth, a two hour consultation called to answer any questions you may have and do some joint constructive work on your growth points. This prize has a value of $375. Now the giveaway rules are you need to fill out the entry form with your name, email and genre. One entry is allowed per person. The winner will be drawn on Monday, the 28th of February. And Craft Better Books will contact the winner by the email given. Now, here's the link for you to go and enter that. It's www.craftbetterbooks.com forward slash world building giveaway. And there is a dash uh, or hyphen in between each of those words, world building giveaway. We'll also post the link on our socials and on the website. And if you're writing in speculative fiction or perhaps doing historical fiction or anything that requires a bit of world building, this is an absolutely amazing, amazing prize. So make sure that you enter for that. Today's guest is the author of the New York Times best-selling National Book Award finalist Black Leopard Red Wolf, the Booker Prize winning A Brief History of Seven Killings, and the Book of Nightwoman and John Crow's Devil. In addition to the Booker Prize, his novels have won the American Book Award, the Los Angeles Times Ray Bradbury Prize for Science Fiction, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. Born in in Jamaica. He now lives in New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Marlon James. And uh, for our listeners, once again, we have Femi Omatade back. Femi is one of our favorite bookstagrammers who runs the Book Alert on Instagram. And she has been doing such a spectacular job of running some of our interviews that we invited her back to chat with Marlon. Femi, welcome back. Thanks, Bianca. And welcome to the show, Marlon. I'm excited to speak to you today about the fantasy genre and specifically about your new release, Moon Witch Spider King, which which is, of course, the second instalment in the Dark Star trilogy. Before we start talking about Moon Witch Spider King, I would like to talk a little bit about the fantasy genre. So if I'm being completely transparent, fantasy is not my most read genre. I think in the last couple of years I've only read a handful if that but I've always been in awe of the mind of a fantasy writer because their ability and the creativity to think of these new worlds and to think of all these characters I am actually in awe and the Dark Star trilogy is quite a departure from your earlier books when I'm talking about John Crow's Devil it's, it's quite different what is it about the fantasy genre uh, why do you love it so much? I think because it just, the world is just so wide open. And for me, fantasy is more than, say, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. It's also Angela Carter. It's also fairy tales. It's also Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's also all the stories that my grandmother and grandfather used to tell me. It's also, it's folklore. It's mythology. And I think when I hear a lot of these stories, I immediately jump to the mythology that they come from. And to me, and I think that's it for me. It's all of it is myth making. And I've always been attracted to myths. I think, um, weirdly enough that it's these mythological stories that we always spin to explain ourselves. And we've always done it from ever, forever. So mythology is so old. So to me, the very best stories is like making new myths. And, um, and that's what always draws me. That's always drawn me to that genre. I always felt 
safe in reading and writing them. And, um, and yeah, well, I always come back to them. So your first book, it was released in 2005 or around that time frame. And I believe it was rejected quite a few times. But once mm-hmm. you became a published author, was it always at the back of your mind that, yes, you were going to have a fantasy book, you were going to have a trilogy? Was that always one of your aims once you became a published author? No, actually. I mean, I usually don't have a clue what my next book is going to be um, sometimes when I'm writing. And funny enough, the, the, the closest that I came to having this having an idea was when I wrote Brief History. Um, there's a picture out there in the internet of the very first copy of Brief History that I got in 2014. And the book is on top of a book on African religious ceremonies. So I was looking at, I was researching without realizing it from back then, but I wasn't researching for a novel. I was researching because I looked at all these societies that are walking around with their mythologies, even without knowing it, and realizing as somebody growing up in Jamaica, growing up in the African diaspora, I didn't know mine. I know some folklore. I knew Anansi and so on, but I had, I, I mean, the first time I heard Shango was when I, on an Angelique Kijo song. I didn't know anything about it. And I think, I, I think there is something disconnected about a black person who is, who doesn't have their mythology. So I went there looking for that and is reading this stuff. I'm like, man, this is some crazy stuff. Um, there is a, there is, there's a, there's a novel, there's two, there are 10 novels here. I could spend forever in this world and write about the stories that I'm finding. And that's how the novels, the novels came about. The novels came out of the research, not the other way around. So you spoke a little bit about African religious ceremonies. And as I was reading Moonwitch Spider King, the influence of Africa was very evident to me from the use of the oral tradition to the setting, to the dialect. It's very obvious that you are influenced by the African continent. Why Africa? What is it about the African continent that you are so inspired by? And why why was it important to you to have that as your as your mm-hmm. setting? I was inspired by, by by what I was saying before. At some point, re, you know, writing these stories, I write, I guess, historical novels, one could call them that, certainly novels that go back to the past. And the oldest historical novel I wrote was set in slavery. And I remember thinking, there's got to be more to my legacy and history and culture than that. And that sent me going further. What was what what was beyond that? What I knew some of the stuff that survived the slave ships, like like Anansi stories and Burr Rabbit, and I knew some of the African gods and goddesses. I have people who are very much you know into you know Santeria and um, and Orisha worship and so on. And and I knew all of that, and I, and I kind of envied that. Because that's a connection to their, you know, it's not even mythological history. It's the, it's a sort of almost emotional history of a people. And that's, you know, when I started doing the research and doing the reading, I knew that it was also a sort of a reservoir of ideas to pull from. So I wasn't necessarily trying to bring Shango and Yemaya into the story for the same reason why I wouldn't have brought Jesus or or John the Baptist in a story because these are active religions and these are living gods. But I wanted to, you know, do what honestly Tolkien and those guys did. Tolkien um, could draw from the breath of his own mythological history and um, and produce something rich. And I remember thinking, I can draw from my own mythological history and produce something rich as well. And that's what it was. For me, 
these novels are a homecoming. Um, are they 100% African? Of course not. Um, it's still a person in the diasporas making a fantasy based on the little that they've read about West Africa and the Sahel region and, and sort of Southern Africa. I, I mean, I barely scratch the surface when it comes to the African, you know, research. Um, Western Central, I mean, basically the Sahel was enough. But that's what it was. It was, to me, a sort of a homecoming. You know, I, I always joke that if you're going to make rock and roll, sooner or later you're going to have to make the blues. And I think as a black writer, sooner or later I'd have to have dealt with where I came from and respond to it in hopefully a creative way. Yeah, she said something that resonated with me when you spoke about the slavery books, because I remember a couple of years ago when there was this massive increase in people all over the world reading books by black authors and I noticed that a lot of the books that were being recommended were slavery books racial trauma books and I'm thinking black characters black stories they do exist outside of this so it is so great that authors like yourself like Tommy Adeyemi they are trying to change that narrative you spoke about how you can spend forever doing this type of research how long did you actually spend researching uh, Moonwitch Spider King it was all fascinating so I started researching this whole trilogy from 2014, from before my before my second novel, not second novel, third novel, Brief History of Seven Killings, came out. So I've been, you know, reading this thing now um, and researching, you know, almost ten years. And you know, when you're researching African history and mythology and religion, you also have to be careful what you're reading. Um, if it's a you know if it's a book by Europeans from you know the 19th century to 20th century even up to the 60s it's pretty much useless uh, uh, because there is that European gaze there is that racism there is a, a, a trying to define African cultures by European standards and none of that is going to be um, much use but yeah I, I also you know as somebody who writes primarily novels set in the past, I do pretty exhaustive research and I will read the boring stuff. Um, I'll read about climate patterns. Um, when I was, there's a scene in Moonwitch where Sogolan is on a boat and I spent, I spent months researching wind patterns and around, you know, going around the Cape of Good Hope and where you can get caught because there's no wind or where you can end up in a shipwreck. So I, you know, because the reason why I do all of that sort of exhaustive research is that even if the world is new to me, and the world is new to the reader, it's not new to the characters. And the characters have to feel as if they're accustomed to this world, so they don't feel like a tourist in it. The reader can feel like a tourist, but the characters can't. So I, you know, I do it, I do research for years and years, and it really doesn't stop. I had to do, despite doing a lot for Black Leopard, I had to research even more for Moonwitch, Spider King. Um, you know, women, you know, things like the, you know, um, women armies and, and the status of matriarchal versus patriarchal societies and, and, you know, jump back a hundred years and see what these places were. It was very important to research pre-Christian, pre-Islam Africa, um, and also very important sub-Saharan Africa, because all of that impacts the book. So it was, it was, um, yeah, pretty, pretty exhaustive. 
And Moon Witch Spider King, it does retell the events that were told from Tanner's perspective in Black Leopard, Red Wolf. Um, but as much as it, as it is a retelling of those events, it is Moon Witch's story. And we'll come to that in a second. But I find that there is something so engaging about reading the same story from a different perspective. It really engages the reader it forces the reader to participate so the reader can determine what is the truth and what is false the reader can choose who is good and who is evil why did you choose to tell the stories in this way i think because i was reading a lot of oral stories um if you're going to research african storytelling and folklore then you're you're doing the oral tradition and i remember looking at oral tradition in my european educated uh, with my European educated ears, you, you think it's quaint or it's primitive, it's it's pre-literary. All of this is of of course absolute BS. That um the the listener had to do things that the reader doesn't have to do. The listener has to do some detective work. The listener has to pay attention to what's similar and what's different. The listener has to listen out for if the re- if the, the storyteller is tricking you. And a lot of stories they are tricking you, or it's about the trickster like Anansi. But also it's up to the listener to um, decide what's true and what's not. And that's one of the things that actually kept kept over into Caribbean folklore and Caribbean storytelling, where I tell you a story and your response is, I don't believe you, tell me another one. Um, so that was one of the one of the aspects of storytelling that survived the slave ships. And, and I knew it was something I wanted in this book, that um, the burden of truth is on the reader. The reader gets to believe, because I'm never going to tell, say, who is, who is um, telling the truth. When I wrote Black Leopard, I believed him. I believe Tracker. When I wrote Moon with Spider King, I believe Sogolon. And I'll believe who tells the next story. Um, the reader is going to have to decide. And do you have any advice for up-and-coming writers who want to tell stories in this type of way? Because having listened to this podcast in the past, I'm led to believe that a lot of writers, they do struggle with this kind of multiple perspectives, telling stories in this type of way. Do you have any tips for them? Um, few one trust where where the story is leading you, and trust where the voices are leading you, and understand that not every time the story is leading you at the, to the beginning. There is no. I've never written a novel where the first thing I wrote is the first thing you read. Um, the first thing I wrote in in brief history it was no one. I think page four twenty. The first thing I wrote in Moonlight Spider King is no one page three eighty four. Where you begin writing is not necessarily the beginning of a novel or the beginning of a story. It's where it's just where your mind and your heart wants to start first. And even you know, not every tale, especially when you're writing stories like folk, like African stories or folklore, understand that not every tale begins at the beginning. Um, that's one thing. But I think you also have to trust that the you know do everything you can to make sure the story that's in your head is what comes down on the page because there are a lot of things that can interrupt that process what is what what will people think are people going to read it who's going to buy it is this the right story all these things that have nothing to do with writing that sort of hijack the process of from head to paper or head to computer screen 
And you just have to learn to shut that out and to trust your own voice, even as you're being a critic. A lot of people say things like, well, I am my toughest critic. Trust me, you're you're not going to be lacking tough critics. You do not have to be your toughest critic. Be your most sympathetic critic. Just put a book out in the world and you'll see who are your toughest critics are. You don't, you don't need to be one of your toughest critics. That job is already taken. You'll be one of your more supportive critics and one of your more encouraging critics. Um, you know, you be your own encouraging fan. Marlon, I absolutely love what you've just said about that where you thought the beginning of the story turned out to be page 400 or whatever the case may be is. Because, you know, on the podcast, we say finding your way into a story is like circling a building and you test the front door and the back door and the fire escape. So so you started with that. And then what do you do? Do you reverse engineer your way into the beginning of the story or do you start from there, go forward and then realize you need to go all the way back? Usually both. Um, two novels where I ended up doing that. Book of Night Woman and Moonrich Spider King. I had written around 30, 40 pages. And and I've given two examples. In Book of Night Woman, I didn't end up using those pages. It ended up leading me to the character I wanted to tell the story. And honestly, those pages I wrote were ended up being useless. So sometimes you do have to sort of spend some pages to get to what you really want to write. And sometimes those pages, it's not that they're useless, it's that they serve their use. Because sometimes write, you know, sometimes re- writing is like driving in the dark. You know, you're, you, you'll get to your destination, but you can't really see what's ahead. And, and once you pass something, it's already in the black. So there is that. But there is also with, and this happened with Moomin Spider King, where the scene that I ended up beginning with did end up in the book. That um, writing it made me realize, I think this is part of the book. It probably will be. But it made me curious as to how the person, the character got to that point. And sometimes that happens. You start out with a set piece. It's interesting. And then you realize sometimes you want to go forward. And that's fine. But sometimes you're like, but how did they get here? And that's when I stopped and started writing that part. And that just ended up being where I wanted to go. And and so it ended up following that um that new not new direction, but it ended up following that that second, you know, direction. So both can happen where you in writing you realize what you really want to write and this has served its purpose or you know, its purpose will be made clear later on in the writing of the book. And sometimes you're surprised at how it still all fits in. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing, amazing advice. Femi, I'm sorry I hijacked your last question. And we're now at the end of our of our show. Thank you so much, Marlon, for, for joining us. And Femi, for your excellent questions as always. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.